Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack. And this week I'm speaking to Janana Vucic, one of the volunteer editors behind The Lifted Brow, the literary magazine that styles itself as a quarterly attack journal from Australia and the world. Janana stopped in at the Stack offices a few weeks ago while she was in London and I was really excited to speak to her about the work they do, which is so effective at not just providing a platform for underrepresented voices, but also searching out experimental work that sustains a really excellent level of quality. It's worth noting that we spoke before the coronavirus had taken hold in Europe, so while the main interview was done in the office, I'm recording this bit from home. Um, My little boy came down with a cough yesterday, so the whole family's now shut up in the house for the next two weeks. Um, We're a day and a half in and everyone is already a little bit crazy. Um, But I know there are lots of people in the same situation and much worse, so if you're listening to this in isolation or if you've had friends and family affected by the virus, uh, I wish you a speedy recovery uh, and I hope that we can all get back to normal life as soon as possible. All of that is a very long way of getting to the point that I don't have my normal editing software with me so I hope this all sounds okay but apologies in advance if you hear a couple of the places where I've cut bits together and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Janana from The Lifted Brow. Janana, thanks so much for coming over. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so you are one of the team behind The Lifted Brow, which has been one of my favourite literary magazines for like six or seven years probably, I think. Um, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about what it is, and I think that will go some way to explaining why I like it so much. Um, I'm really pl- pleased to hear that, actually. Um, but basically, The Lifted Brow is, we describe ourselves as a, a quarterly attack journal. Um, and so what we try and do is publish experimental work and work that specifically comes from the outside the margins, is, is I guess how we phrase it, but basically work that's not by the cis, white, heterosexual males of, of most journals. Um, I think we've been around since probably 2007 now, and this most recent iteration has, I think, come into into being in the last couple of years, but it is now quarterly. Um, and, yeah. There are lots of magazines out there that call themselves the something quarterly and come out maybe once or twice a year. I think lots of people start thinking for, for a year, that's mm-hmm. fine, that's easy, but it's actually a really quite intense publishing schedule. It really is. Um, <laughs> and I had no idea. I started interning with them Uh, I think in 2015, and basically the way it works is every magazine is produced by a group of interns. Um, So I had this idea that it it would be easy, it'd be sort of relaxed because it's a bunch of interns doing it, so surely it cannot be too complicated. But actually the mechanics of making this work, the things that you don't see behind the scenes. um, So yeah, it is every issue is produced by a new group of interns, but then you have behind that editors and commissioning editors and the publisher, obviously, all the admin people um, all working together to, to really try and produce four really excellent mm. uh, issues every year. Mm. So, uh, so I was going to say that like, for all that, you know, there's a new group of interns working on it, there must be a permanent team there because it has that like constancy in mm. its tone. The, you know, the, it, it doesn't look like a mag that's being produced by a new group of people each time. Uh, yeah, so that's true. We have the two editors, Justin and Ginny, who are sort of 
supervising everything, I guess. I think they'd hate to hear me call it supervising, (laughs) but just sort of um, keeping an eye on how things are going. And we have um, a translations editor, two fiction editors, a poetry editor, and also myself and another commissioning editor. Um, And then, as, as I said, the people who are involved, not specifically in the editing, but in admin and social media and that sort of thing um and so that team really does have to communicate quite a lot to ensure that we're sort of all going in the right direction or in the same direction mm-hmm. um and especially we do every i think it's every december the issue we have is like a themed issue so last december it was digital intimacies and looking at um the internet and social media and, and what that means for intimacy um and before that it was actually Blackbrow, which we handed over the magazine entirely to First Nations editors and writers. Um, but those issues in particular require everyone to, to be working on the same theme, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, of course, yeah. And th- I mean, Blackbrow in particular really struck me as something that felt particularly urgent. Mm. The, the, I guess partly because it's coming from Australia and that's a place which is a very long way away from where I am. I, I don't get to hear a huge amount of that perspective Mm. but black brown really crystallized something i think which was the like anger and frustration at a lot of the prejudices that are felt over there but then did manage to do it in this incredibly positive way of showcasing this whole great new group of voices Mm. that i literally would never have come across if it weren't for that issue of the magazine Mm. i think it was a it's a project that we wanted to do for such a long time um, and it really required us as white colonisers to realise that there, there is no way that we can do this without actually just giving control to the, the writers um, themselves and to the editors themselves. And so for me that was a really wonderful project to well, not be involved in because it was literally just sort of saying this is how I use the things that I do to do my job have access to them um but what came out i think was a really really necessary piece of work and i think it really stands as a testament to how to how frustratingly white uh australian media can be but the talent that we don't showcase Mm. because of that the talent that we we just don't get to see the the voices that are not heard Mm. because there's just so many sort of structural and um, more overtly racist things that get in the way. Um, unfortunately, with Black Brow, it is sort of an ex- a, a one example among very, very few where that is mm-hmm. the case. And I think at this moment, we're trying to really figure out how we can do something better, do something more, um, and sort of try and carry on the spirit of Black Brow. Um, one of the commissioning editors is a First Nations woman, but that I think isn't enough for us and, and I, I do it's, it's obviously a little bit difficult for me to say because I'm now living over in Europe but I know there is a, a lot of thought going into how we can continue this and how we can make sure that we're not just sort of saying the words but without actually living the actions yes, yeah, yeah. so one consequence of uh, this approach that you take is that voices are platformed that you might not otherwise hear mm-hmm. But I think the consequence that I love the most is formal in terms of it results in types of writing which are 
really experimental or, or like playing with something or trying to do things differently is that something that you consciously edit for and, and try to to find um I myself have not had the chance to work with something that's very sort of formally innovative um that said I a lot of the other editors have um there's a piece coming up in the most recent issue uh, by Eloise Grills who actually won uh so just a bit of background uh, the Lifted Brow also runs a experimental nonfiction writing prize, and she won a few years ago. Um, and the piece is this mix of um, like art painting, sort of a really interesting style with poetic uh, writing and also theory as well. So it's sort of like this really great blend of art, auto theory. It's amazing. Um, and there was another piece that was done with a like a QR code that you could get, like you went to a website, which I just thought was fantastic and amazing. And I'd never actually used a QR code in my life before that. So it was, I actually didn't know how to do that. I had to Google how to yeah. QR code. Yeah. Um, turns out it's very easy. Uh, but those kind of works are really, really exciting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting a little bit more involved in them um, in my commissioning in the future. Recently, it's been mostly pieces that I've, I found writers that I, I thought I'd really like to work with or that weren't. Um, perhaps as well known as, as I mean, I guess in literary circles it is sort of somewhat of a, a smaller world, but at the same time there were voices that I thought could be um, raised up and I really wanted to work with them. Mm-hmm. But in the future I definitely want to do a little bit more experimental stuff. Uh, and the, there's also a real range in terms of the, the types of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So the, you have fiction and non-fiction in a, a relatively conventional sense. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of poetry, there's a lot of comics. The, it, it, again, is this something that you're actively thinking, okay, we need a few more comics pieces for this issue, or, or is it much more kind of reflexive? Um, I think it just it's very organic, the way that it happens. I don't think there's ever been a moment where someone's gone, oh, this, this issue doesn't have a lot of comics. It just seems to be that as people are putting their ideas forward, as we're, you know, we have a spreadsheet that sort of talks about what we'd like to publish and what we're hoping to get, um, it just always happens that there's lots of comics in there. It always happens that there's a good mix of sort of um, essays and more creative types of essays and fiction. Uh, obviously, there is, you know, a specific poetry editor and a specific fiction editor, so they're always going to produce those works. But in terms of comics and art and things, that just sort of naturally happens, I think. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I've never encountered an issue where it seems like we just don't have enough of the one thing. Yeah, yeah, Somehow yeah. all of our eclectic tastes combine and we get this really glorious mess of different things. <laughs> and incredibly successfully so as well. Mm. So we at the Stack Awards last year, it's when we met very briefly for the first time. Um, so you won Best Original Nonfiction uh, and you were shortlisted in Best Original Fiction, mm. which I don't think any other magazine uh, has managed that before. So the, 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 I guess it's not just that you're putting weird stuff up mm. there it's actually the sort of things that judges on prizes really respond to as well. Yeah, I think so. I think um, the we've always been really, really concerned with getting work that is not only experimental, not only um, a little bit unusual, but that's really, really good. Mm. And I think that's actually one of the incredible benefits of being a magazine that focuses on voices from the margins um, is that there's so much amazing work being done that sometimes just isn't seen because mm. um you know the institutional structural factors that prevent that 
Um, but the quality of the work is always incredible and the magazine itself has such a strong reputation. Um, one of the reasons I applied to intern there was because I had seen a piece by Margaret Atwood that was in there. Um, and I know we published Teja Cole and Tao Lin and some really, really well-known Australian writers as well, Christopher Tsoukas. And um, it's just one of those places that has always been run by people who are incredibly passionate about literature, who are incredibly passionate about doing something a little bit different, who are incredibly passionate about being inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so what you get from that is obviously going to be something pretty special, Mm -hmm. I think. So you mentioned uh, the tagline earlier, the Mm -hmm. quarterly attack journal. Just to finish that off, a quarterly attack journal from Australia and the world. So you clearly are an Australian magazine, but it feels like you deliberately have a very international outlook. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the focus is always going to be um, on Australian issues just because they're so pertinent and salient to, to the lives of the readers. But at the same time, we are we are outward looking. Um, and so as you heard from the names I have listed before, there are overseas writers that get involved. And a lot of our staff, um, like myself, for example, live overseas now. Um, and so there's a way that that sort of movement around the world sort of permeates the magazine and ensures that it's never just sort of myopically inward looking but it's also very outward expanding as well. Mm -hmm. And so where is the actual home of the magazine? As the home of the magazine itself is in Melbourne. Uh, We do uh, run like a a queer reading group out of Sydney um, and that's really exciting but that's not part of the magazine proper. Mm -hmm. Um, The magazine is based in Melbourne City and that's usually where a lot of the um, volunteer workers, because <laughs> we are all volunteers, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, that's where everyone sort of comes. Um, as I said, do have a lot of people that work elsewhere. Uh, the glories of internet technology being what it is, it means you can work from elsewhere, but Melbourne is its home. And is this like you're all in an office together or you get together in a pub or something? Um, we have sort of commandeered some space at a university in Australia so there's a room at RMIT University and every Friday is when the interns and um, sort of any staff that can make it come in to work on the magazine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you've just already mentioned the prize Mm -hmm. uh, that you run uh, a queer reading group by the sounds of things in Sydney I know that there's a book publishing arm as well this sounds like it's much more than a small literary magazine. It really has become much more. Um, we've, yeah, so I think it was two years ago that we started Brow Books, um, which is the books in print. And the first piece was a story, or rather a novel, um, The Island Will Sink by Barony Doyle. And then, and just sort of snowballed from there. And it's become, uh, I, I, I am so incredibly proud of it. I can hardly find the words, but it's become such a small juggernaut in the Australian literary scene, a small juggernaut, juggernaut because it is, it's again, run by volunteers. um, And yet the work that is being produced, one of the books, uh, Axiomatic by Maria Tamarkin has won all sorts of awards and been um, shortlisted for all sorts of awards in Australia. And then has gone on to be, I think it was the New Yorker in the top 10 books of 2019. And um, a lot of the books that we're publishing are then getting picked up by overseas publishers, Mm -hmm. which is, so incredibly exciting to see and not just for the cover reveals which I really enjoy as well but (laughs) just to see how those words are being translated into all these different languages and and being spread in a way that 
I, I honestly couldn't have imagined that something as small as Brow Books could achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because, it, again, it comes down to how much everyone cares about what we're doing, that this is possible, I think. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's pretty exciting. Is, is there some frustration there as well, though? Because you're publishing really high-quality stuff that people want to buy. Overseas publishers are wanting to pick these things mm. up. And yet you're, you're all working as a bunch of volunteers on a Friday when you can manage it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think this is just one of the, the tragedies of small publishing um, that people probably don't really know unless they are in the industry that it's so incredibly uncommon for people to get paid. Um, one of the things that I really value about the brow is that we've always, well, not always, but we have for a long time now managed to pay our contributors and that I think is really, really important because the hours of work that go into any piece are, are just beyond what you'd normally imagine. But at the same time, there is that side of things where it's editors also contribute a lot of time. Um, the social media people, the, the interns themselves. And we are trying to get funding to pay people. Mm-hmm. And that will hopefully be something that eventuates in the future. We're not quite sure how it's going to look, but it is one of the goals that we have mm. to ensure that we can pay the editors and ensure that we can pay the, the people that are putting in all this all this time to produce something that is really, really incredible that everyone enjoys. And yet, and yet we don't get, you know, appropriately uh, paid for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, looking at your masthead, you're already doing a really good job with fundraising. So you've got the Australia Council for the Arts, Creative Victoria, Melbourne City of Literature, you've mentioned RMIT University. To my eyes, as somebody based here in London, that's incredible. I mean, the, the, we don't really have funding bodies that that are... I mean, there's the Arts Council, but it's incredibly difficult to get anything like down that route. For me to see a, an independent publisher like this, which is doing such a good job with the fundraising, I guess on the one part shows that you're doing a very good job, but also that there are these opportunities still in Australia. Mm-hmm. Is that going to continue, do you think? Uh, it's The problem is it's it's so contingent on government. And I think that's one of the fears that you know every time a budget is released, we look at the arts funding and go, well, how do we best divvy this up? Like, what is... What are our chances and what can we think we can achieve? Um, so it's it's a really frustrating situation where so many creative organisations are in some sense pitted against one another in order to compete, write these grant applications to, to possibly receive grants. Um, and we've been fortunate that we've gotten enough to keep the magazine running and publishing and paying our contributors. But there is always a fear that that won't happen again. Mm. And, you know, there have been certainly grants that we've applied for that we've not managed to to um, nab and so there is always that sort of pressure at the same time I do I do notice the difference between Australia um, and the UK just based on on the literary journals I see here and you know there are a few like really big well-known names and then there's not much that sort of fills up those those sort of more grassroots areas mm-hmm. um, and so I guess it's really really fortunate that we do get a little bit more opportunity to apply for funding in Australia mm-hmm. but Again, it's it's so contingent. It's so easily taken from you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So looking ahead, what stage are you at with the next issue? And can you tell us anything about what's going to be in that one? 
So the next issue has actually just been published. Um, and in that one, I commissioned a piece by um, a young writer, Zoe Douglas-Kinghorn, and it's one of the pieces I'm really excited about. It's talking about fracking, which is becoming increasingly in the Australian zeitgeist because it's it's something that we're now doing as a quote-unquote cleaner mode of energy and her piece is about whistleblowers in the industry so that's one I'm really really excited about there's another short story in there by um Ken Young-suk who we are also publishing her book I I think it's called At Night He Lifts Weights um and she's just it's this like dystopian I think about a pandemic or some kind of sickness and it's just really really dark and and wonderful um and I have read it but I'm really looking forward to reading it again um, and there's also another piece about queer parenthood in Australia by Georgia Mill, which I'm really looking forward to reading as well. Yeah. Right. Well, I obviously was looking forward to reading it, but now I'm really looking forward to it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky uh, you guys send me a copy of the magazine when it's done. Thank you very much. Uh, what about other listeners who are outside of Australia? What's the best way for them to get hold of it? Um, so the best way is probably just going on the website, um, theliftedbrow.com, and that way you can subscribe or you can also buy individual issues. Um, and if you're interested in what we've done in the past, you can also buy past issues or like I think it's called a bag of brows and it's just sort of a mixed bag of, of good brow business from, from the past. Nice. Excellent. Um, well, thank you so much for stopping in to do this. Uh, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thank you very much. And you're most welcome. Okay, that's all for this week. Again, I want to take a moment to just point out that Janana came over before Europe was locked down with coronavirus. So uh, that whole dystopian pandemic she mentioned at the end there didn't seem quite so close to home. But weirdly, now we're actually feeling the effects. I want to read the piece more than I did before. Um, I haven't seen the new issue yet. And while we're working on getting hold of copies for the stack shop, we don't have an estimated arrival date. But we'll definitely shout about it once we have it in stock. So follow us on Twitter or sign up for our newsletter to hear about that. In the meantime, we've got loads of brilliant independent magazines waiting for you. So if you are locked down as you're listening to this, head over to the Stack Shop and take a look through the selection there. Our warehouse is running totally to normal, so order online and we'll get your magazines out to you straight away. Thank you very much for listening to this one and we'll be back with another episode next week.